The post-college perspective is huge because I did that as a runner. I did a lot of races in Europe and I'd go there and I'd just take it completely for granted because like, yeah, I'm going to be here again, man. Like, yeah. this is no big deal. Like, uh, Crescetto, whatever, you know, like, Pisa, who cares? Like, I'm going to be back. And then <laughs> you end up a couple of years later working in, uh, in a running shoe store and thinking, fuck, like, I'm not back there. Uh-huh. And I wish I had enjoyed that more. Oh, Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. I'm your host, I am Ted King, and I'm very excited to bring you this episode with our guest, Canadian Mike Woods. Let's take a step back. Bo Jackson, Dion Sanders, Michael Jordan, Michael Woods. These are world-class athletes who've made it professionally in two sports. Mike Woods, our guest today, is right up there with those all-stars. I'm guessing you've heard at least pieces of Mike's story. He's a prodigal runner who makes the lateral leap to the cycling world. Mike's world-class athletics have allowed him to hold the achievement of being the only sub-four-minute miler to also race in the Tour de France. And in this day and age of hyper-specific approach, to professional sports. I would not be surprised if he is the last. Mike is also a podium finisher at Liège-Bastogne-Liège, podium finisher at the 2018 World Freaking Championships, coincidentally exactly one year ago from as from the day I record this. Stage winner of the Vuelta España. And I'm not kidding when I interject mid-pod that you, our listener, should look up that YouTube highlights from the 2018 Stage 17 finish because it was foolishly hard and magnificently dramatic the way he wins it. Mike has the physiological chops and he backs it up with some awesome on-road and on-screen heroics. Really excited to have this conversation with Mike. This podcast will touch on the obvious pieces that make Mike's story interesting, but plenty of really unique ones that I think have been left out of his story are still to come. A dynamic individual, perpetually upbeat and always boosting the mood of those around him, This conversation with Mike is a winner. Folks, this is episode number 45. Thanks go out to Mike and our 44 other guests, as well as you, our listener, for making this podcast what it is today. It is a pleasure and truly an honor to sit down with our guests and simply have a talk. I have a growing number of recorded conversations here in the hopper that I am pumped to release in the coming weeks and months. I crack open parts of my guests' backgrounds that are entirely new to me, and I'm going. I'm assuming they're going to be eye-opening for you. I listen to dozens of other podcasts, and I think the very best ones hit two fundamental cornerstones. They're educational, and they tell a story. It is a pleasure for me to learn from our guests amid their storytelling. So again, huge thanks go out to them. If you're enjoying this show... Reviews make a big difference in our growth here on King of the Ride. Hundreds of you have left reviews, but that still leaves thousands of you out there as potential reviewers. Five stars are appreciated. Your feedback is equally appreciated. Let's now wrap up my jabbering on and kickstart this conversation with Mike Woods. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, please enjoy the ride. curious if you watched the Vuelta today. No. 
and I've been meaning to because I heard it was crazy with lots of crosswinds and it was a really exciting finish. Yep. But just been full gas since I got here. Classic first day at a big race, being a Canadian at a Canadian race, just doing a lot of interviews and media stuff. So mm-hmm. I just didn't have time to watch the race yet. Definitely interesting stage. I think, what, yesterday was a rest day. Prior to that, they were in the mountains. Today was stage 17. Which is why I bring it up, because relative to Vuelta terms, one year ago, do you remember where you were about a year ago? Yeah. Uh, was it, actually, I, I, was it stage, stage 17, I think? According was, to my diligent internet research, you won stage 17 of the 2018 okay. Vuelta. Okay, yeah, so it was stage, I, I always get mixed up whether it was 17 or 18. But yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was a really nice day. Yeah, well, I bet. Um, I, I never won a Grand Tour stage, so I'm curious, what's that like, besides a really nice day? That was my first world tour win, period, and I hadn't won a race in two years. Uh, so just that fact was really nice. Uh, but that win particularly was a product of the fact that my my wife, Ellie, had a stillbirth two months earlier, and we lost our son. His name was Hunter. And after that death, we I invested myself fully in the bike. I just was really a bit, I felt a bit lost at at certain points and felt all these emotions, a huge range of emotions. But I found that the bike was this amazing outlet for a lot of those emotions and was super cathartic. And uh, I felt like one of the best ways that I could ameliorate the situation was by riding well. And I don't know if that was going to change anything, but uh, yeah, I just poured myself into the bike and trained super hard and, uh, all with this idea of just kind of trying to do something to honor him. And I think also Ellie and I, we kind of, we made this commitment to ourselves after, uh, he passed away that we would as cheesy as it sounds like, cause this is going to be sound really cliche is live our lives to the fullest, you know, like mm-hmm. he never had a chance to live and we, we did we do and uh why continue wasting like why waste uh great opportunities and one of those things one of those opportunities that i have is i get to race my bike i get to race my bike at the highest level and i have opportunities to win big races so why not invest myself fully in that and yeah i just uh trained super hard got in the best shape of my life and that race just played out perfectly for my skill set, really steep finish. And, uh, yeah, it was this, uh, really hard finish where I attacked fairly early thinking that we only had about 150 term years to go because there was a lot of fog. There were a lot of fans. Uh, I couldn't see the finish. And after I attacked, I looked up and I saw there was still 500 meters left. Oh my Lord. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> no. Like, yeah. And I started falling apart. My director, uh, Juan Mac, came on the radio and said, uh, you've got, just just, just focus for 30 seconds. And I literally, so I counted in my head, 30, 29, 20, all the way down to zero and looked up and there's still like 400 meters to go. We were going super slow. It was like yeah, 20% yeah. finish. Oh, I've watched it. I recommend that all of our listeners go, go Google the stage, watch it. It is <laughs> heinous. Yeah, it was a steep finish. And so then, he, but then after that, he said, do it for your family. Yeah. And he hadn't used that all race or anything, but Juanma was well aware of what happened and we're very close. So he's a, one of my, like he's my personal director and he's a great guy and uh, he's a great motivator. And yeah, he used that line, do it for your family. Mm-hmm. And I just went, I've never gone that deep in a race. 
I, 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 I just pushed myself. I got tunnel vision and I was able to hold off Dylan Toons who was coming back on me a bit and cross the line and just kind of for the next 45 seconds, I couldn't think or feel anything. I was just so messed up. I was fucked. Like yeah. I was cooked. And then after about 45 seconds of collecting myself, I finally realized, oh man, I just won. I won a bike race. I finally won a bike race. I finally won a world tour race. And then it just kind of opened this floodgate of emotions. It was, it was really special. That's amazing. There's a book that I've mentioned on the podcast before, Endure, which talks about, you know, what, what is the human body capable of? And great book. Phenomenal book. Yeah. Runner. Alex Hutchinson, Alex, yeah. who wrote it. Uh, he's actually, he was a journalist in Ottawa when I was a high school runner and he oh, wrote really? a couple articles on me. That's my, <laughs> my Alex Hutchinson story. Are you mentioned in the book? No, 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 no. no. Come on, Alex. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, just the, the, so we both can appreciate in our reader as soon as you read it or listener, as soon as you read it, talks about just how deep you, can you push? Like, you know, any point along those final 500 meters, you probably could have easily said, that's it. I can't push any harder and stopped. Yeah. But what in your mind allows you to push deeper? Um, not to mention, yeah, you're, you're, not being able to feel anything for those first 45 seconds afterwards your your entire body is so coursing with lactic acid at that point like you're just you are cooked you've literally cooked your internals yeah yeah yeah. it was uh, uh it was but it was it resulted in this ethereal high afterwards yeah. like just pushing myself that far accomplishing something that i've dreamed of doing and uh doing that on the back of all those other emotions i i was effective i felt like i wasn't over uh uh, Hunter's death, but I was I, I I felt like I'd kind of grieved and I was feeling normal again. And then for that week, I cried every day. Yeah, phenomenal, remarkable. Um, well, we will we will continue on the cycling trend and, and get back to these things. You are a Canadian, so naturally you grew up with maple syrup in your veins and on on skates. Who's your hockey team? Ottawa Senators. It used to be the Toronto Maple Leafs. I'm from Toronto originally. Okay, but uh, I was gonna have to bust your chops on that. I read that you you grew up thinking that you're gonna be a a leaf. Yeah, and I knew that you're from Ottawa. Okay, but then it was a slow conversion. I went to University of Michigan, uh-huh. and at Michigan, there I started kind of more. I don't know. I just started identifying more with the the Ottawa Senators. Moved back to Ottawa, and then it was like full gas Ottawa Sens fan. Okay, good choice. Oh, they're gonna say that you were a Wings fan. No, I was, but like that's kind of helped the conversion because I started watching more Wings games and was less like yeah less married to toronto yeah i uh, i don't think anyone will fault you for being a sens fan because they're never amazing yeah we've had a couple runs 2000 runs. 2007 uh-huh. uh went to the finals against uh anheim dan offerson was playing great but uh couldn't pull it off say la vie okay so i think the general cycling audience knows this romanticized story of mike woods the runner Mike Woods, the prolific runner, sub four minute miler, turned Mike Woods the cyclist, the the all star cyclist. But it doesn't really talk about the trials and tribulations to get from point A to point B, and that's very quickly glossed over when they're talking, you know, on television and you're you're lighting up the TV. I, I want to talk about those trials and tribulations and the and the perks and the the good moments in between. Um, so compartmentalizing, let's talk about the the running side first. I think there's there's a general story of a runner who is very good, who has a bad dietary patterns and overtraining, and then they're going to have a stress fracture and that's the end of their career. Like, how does that unfold? How does one have a successful career without yeah. those things? Running's, running's a, a, a kind of like a, uh, it's pretty, it's actually a really difficult sport on the body. It's really hard on the body. 
And I made the mistake that I'm sure you've seen a lot of young riders make and that I've seen young riders make. And it's basically any many young, strong, exceptional athletes make is that they get too consumed by the sport. And so it wasn't uh, at that time it was running was everything to me and I had nothing outside of it. I could have been in the worst place in the world, but if I was running well, I was happy. Mm-hmm. I surrounded myself by runners and I my value as a person was completely attached to how fast I ran. And then also because it's such a hard sport in the body, because my diet wasn't that great, uh, in the early 2000s, our idea of diet has changed so much. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it's not the, it wasn't the same as it is now. Uh, my diet was terrible, and I was just counting calories, trying to lose weight. My life fluctuated quite a bit just from binge drinking at parties at school to just starving myself to be good for a key race. And then, uh, yeah, because also this weird – I had this crazy weird uh, dynamic with running, this weird relationship with running. I couldn't take it easy uh, when things started to fall apart. I had to still feel like I, uh, because things were going well, I felt like – me as a person wasn't going well as well. And because of that, I had to keep on pushing through uh, soreness and pain that were early indicators of an injury. And that injury eventually turned into being a stress fracture in, in my left navicular bone and continuing not, not letting it heal. I just kept on running on it, making it worse till, uh, until I've had to have, I had to have several surgeries and, and effectively couldn't run on the bone anymore. Brutal. Uh, navicular bone. Bone in the foot? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's and effectively kind of like the, uh, what is it, the uh, scaphoid of the foot. So sure. for cyclists <laughs> who break their scaphoid, it's a tough one to heal. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, you look for a job, you get a, sh- a job in a run store and somehow pick up a bike. Yeah. And and immediately take to the bike. I, I So I went to school for English and had... Uh, no uh, applicable job skills after university. I basically, like, no, I had no, f- for like, I never thought I'd not be a pro runner. So I just didn't plan on being uh, in the working world. Mm-hmm. And uh, particularly back in Canada, Michigan's a good school, but it's not, school's a lot more standardized in Canada. So it's not like in Canada, you talk about how you're a McGill man, you know, like, or... Uh, so like I'd say I went to the University of Michigan, but that'd be nothing here. Hmm. So I'd have no job uh, qualifications outside just the degree that I had. And it got me nowhere. And therefore, I ended up working uh, at a bank first and then uh, at a running shoe store. And uh, in that time, just to kind of keep my sanity and stay fit, I just started riding a bike. My dad had a bike and was really getting into it and he suggested I try it out. So I did and uh, yeah, just kind of fell in love with it. What Fell in love with the ability to push myself again and get outside and ride. So jumping then to the cycling side and, and again, it's not as though you jumped on the bike, your dad's bike, and then immediately find yourself on Cannondale, on EF Cannondale. Uh, EF Education First presented by Karen Dill. I think that's our current team name. No, no, no. It's now just EF Pro Cycling. Oh, fair enough. Right. Yeah. That's what I meant. So the point being, I want to talk about your trajectory there because there's plenty of trials and tribulations. You you first go to Garneau, Quebec Corps, and then I believe to Amora Vita, which is where I see cycling careers go 
where cyclists learn that they actually hate riding a bike. Two five-hour energy to Optum to Cannondale. Um, talk to me about that because I believe we also ran into each other. Um, I think we shared the mutual friend. We share our mutual friend, Keith Kelly, and it was sometime around 2013 that we were training together on on a coincidental training ride, and I heard about this runner who was trying to make it big, and you're like, okay, yeah, there's plenty of people with a big engine, but making it is a whole different story. Yeah, the continental scene is uh, is tough. It's like, it's not, a, for a lot of people who are outside of the sport, they don't realize how unglamorous it is and how hard it is. And so, yeah, it wasn't like a this easy ride to the top at all. There were many nights spent on cots, lying down on a cot, looking up at like some crappy moldy ceiling, thinking, what what the hell am I doing? Why, what am I, what am I doing with my life? This was a really terrible decision. And yeah, I started off riding for Garneau and a great continental program based in Quebec and tons of uh, excellent support. But that that year the team was moving on, the next year the team was moving on to uh, more of a crit-focused calendar. <laughs> and I uh, broke my collarbone right before these two races, Montreal and Quebec. I was selected for the national team. This is going to be my opportunity to kind of prove myself to get on to more to an American-based uh, continental team, which would would have been the next kind of step mm-hmm. in progression. And other teams had expressed interest. Swain Tuff wrote me an amazing message to Jonas at Optum. But uh, after breaking the collarbone, no one bit. So I had no opportunities except the idea of riding for Garneau next year, the year following, uh, doing a quick calendar. And during that time, uh, there was a Canadian director at Amorivita named... Uh, Phil Cortez, who convinced me to come out and ride for them. And it was a crazy, crazy experience. Uh, riding for Morivita, like you said, it's ruined many a career. There's actually some great riders that have come out of the program too. 100%. Though. Cipollini. Yep. Talansky rode for them. Yep. Yeah, it's right in Luca. I mean, I, I would see these dudes. I'd see where the, the, the operation is based. Um, yeah. Were you living in Luca? Yeah. I initially, like I said, showed up at the team house and it was this moldy apartment with two bedrooms eight riders and just it was so bad Mm -hmm. it was so bad man and (laughs) and i showed up there with this idea of i was 27 at the time with this idea that i was going to be like going to this european team that was going to be i I knew it wasn't gonna be great but i didn't didn't think it'd be this bad Uh and uh would you i mean you're you're acquainted with phil at this point another mutual friend do you say phil what have i gotten into i mean is he is he living in the house or he's living? yeah he's living in the house as oh, well brutal so he's overseeing this madness so yeah he knew full well what i was getting into uh i mean he didn't sugarcoat it a ton either mm-hmm. but it was it wasn't it was uh it was definitely a great learning experience and i did the one event it was, it was like we had some really sketchy people involved with the team uh there are three positives i believe with that team that year mm-hmm. that was actually the main reason why i transferred teams halfway through the season also because uh, a guy named bruno lingua who was my teammate in garneau he was on five hour and kind of threw me a lifeline mm-hmm. but the one benefit of one big benefit of being on that team was the fact that we did some huge races our bikes didn't work our our uh, everything was disorganized. We showed up to races late, but we got to do these big races. We got to do proper 0.1 HC Italian races. Mm-hmm. And I learned in those races quite a bit. By the time I'd finished half the season, I felt like I was a far more experienced rider and I still had ways to go, but I could, I could actually navigate the Peloton somewhat. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, um, you're not going to learn that racing so-and-so U.S. race, so-and-so Canadian race. No, where exactly. We have, we're racing on highways here in North America. Exactly. And so because of that, I came back here, rode really well again at the Montreal and Quebec races for the national team. And Jonas Carney offered me a, a spot at opt, at the at Rally. Now, now Rally used to be Optum. Mm-hmm. And uh, Optum, because I had this experience, we went to Europe right away. And my first my first race of the season was uh, Tour of Algarve, and Great I finished yeah I finished fifth on a mountaintop uh, with with some hitters like there was Richie Port, Garrett Thomas, Kwiatkowski, David Formolo, Robert Hessink, Scarponi, a bunch of really big names, and I was right in the mix. And I think that result particularly uh, caught the eye of JV because JV had heard of my engine before that, but hadn't seen this ability to ride well in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of really piqued his interest. There's sort of the joke that you have this world-class engine with this novice bike handling skills when you first start riding a bike. I mean, I've seen in interviews that that you've said something to that effect, but it's also such a steep learning curve. Once you've crashed once, you never want to crash again. And and to be able to navigate Italian races, Italian 1.0 HCs and so on and so forth, like that takes ridiculous bike handling skills that most people can't even begin to realize. So... Did you did you have a crazy steep learning curve? Is it like did, do you think that you were dangerous in the first couple of years, or was it just like no, okay, I crash as much as anybody else crashes? I crashed more, okay, for sure. <laughs> it was this crazy steep learning curve, uh, but and, and yeah, it's something that I think a lot of particularly North Americans don't recognize because bike racing in North America isn't the same as racing in Europe because of the big roads, uh, because of just the nate yeah the nature of the roads really. But I was really fortunate to have great parents that put me in so many different sports when I was a kid. I played hockey, soccer, downhill skiing, cross-country skiing, tennis, like everything. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of doing all of these sports is that you kind of start, whenever you get into another sport, you kind of start seeing links and you start being able to transfer skills. And although I didn't have this wealth of experience in cycling, I had this wealth of experience in transferring skills. And I felt like, I was able to learn the sport a lot faster than a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Totally get that. Uh, on the drive up here today, I was listening to David Epstein, formerly Sports Illustrated reporter, who was talking about the best athletes are, on, are generally the most diversified. They're not the ones who've been specifically training. Okay, there's the Tiger Woods examples, but... Yeah. You know. I, I hate hearing, you know, hockey moms, soccer parents or whatever just uh, putting their kid year-round, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, do a bunch of different sports. For Canadians, Wayne Gretzky was a great baseball player and even ran track and field. Michael Jordan, amazing bat- yeah. baseball player. Yep. People rag on him for being like not the greatest baseball player, but frig you like after years out of the sport, he actually was what he batted what point three or whatever. Sure. Yeah. For, in triple A ball, that's uh-huh. amazing. Yep. Yeah, it came within a hair's distance of making it to the majors. That's what I say anyway. Um. So, you know, you talk about the stories of the moldy ceilings and, and, you know, laying in a cot thinking, what on earth am I doing? Are you in a relationship with Ellie at this point? Yeah. Are you married? Uh, we were engaged at that time. So this is actually the the other luxury that I had. I was in such a unique situation. Okay. I was 27 and that, that was weird that I was at riding at that age, especially weird what I was doing, but I also had a sugar mama. like. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie is quite a successful woman. She's done really well for herself in just the working world. She started working um, at a company called 
Cognos when she was 19 while going to university and uh, after university got moved up within the company and just she's been working since she was a kid and through that she uh, Cognos got bought out by IBM she ended up uh, being in this really neat, interesting marketing role where she could travel and so she came with me to Italy she paid the bills for our apartment also I had and I also had um, a really good sponsor that helped me out as well for with some cash so in the end, I ended up moving out of this apartment. I lived in downtown Luca, mm-hmm. and we had an amazing life experience there as well. Completely. Yeah, Italy's amazing. Being able to live there in that experience is, is such a you know a phenomenal... It's something you can take with you forever. Yeah, you know, it was it, incredible, and it was far less of a grind than a lot of other guys have compar- comparatively. Right, and I think you have an appreciation being able to do that, A, with a partner, and B, at that age, because the initial grind... You know, those are the things that, that traditionally, if you're going to be a cyclist, you do in your teens. Yeah. And then you're able to do it with a new perspective, with a post-college perspective, with with your your forever spouse. The post-college uh, yeah. perspective is huge. Yeah. Because I did that as a runner where I'd go to, I raced in Italy. I'd raced in, raced in a lot of races. I did a lot of races in Europe. And I'd go there and I'd just take it completely for granted because like, yeah, I'm going to be here again, man. Like, yeah. this is no big deal. Like, uh, Grisetto, whatever, you know, like, Pisa, who cares? Like, I'm going to be back. And then <laughs> you end up uh, a couple of years later working in, uh, in a running shoe store and thinking, fuck, like, I'm not back there. Uh-huh. And I wish I had enjoyed that more. It's, it's yeah, you've had career 2.0. Yeah, so, so, like, now I get to enjoy it that much more. And I find myself, there's so, so often where I'm sitting on a bus and just actually not looking at my phone, looking out the window, enjoying just the beauty of the countryside or the fact that I'm in this cool place. So outside of the very obvious a question, uh, an answer like, because I didn't burn out, what do you suppose are the benefits of, of getting into the sport late? One, the appreciation, like we're talking about, but then either continue on the, the non-athletic side or what do you suppose the, the benefits are from, from an athletic standpoint? I think a lack of ego. And I can say this because I was pretty cocky when I was much younger and that's a part of the reason why I ruined my running career as well was, you know, you just, I, what, there's very few 19 year old boys that think they don't know everything, <laughs> you know, like Accurate. I, I felt like I knew everything and I was, I was, I wasn't great at taking advice. Whereas I have no problem taking advice from even like when I came in, I had no problem taking advice from a 21 year old kid if I felt like he, it, it, it was justified and I tried to just be a sponge and learn from everybody. And I really felt like, as I think most people do, as they get older, they just realize they don't know anything and they're willing, they're completely comfortable with that. And mm-hmm. I think that was the case with me. Stellar. Great answer. Having gotten into the sport later, being in career 2.0, where do you think you are in your, your, your career trajectory? I think I'm like, I'm in smack dab in the middle right now. You're 32? Uh, yeah, I'm 32. Okay. I feel like I've finally kind of, I've hit a bit of a plateau this season. I haven't hit the highest results, the highest results that I've had in my career. But this season I was super consistent up until I got sick at the Dauphiné. I had finished top 10 in every uh, stage race that I did. And I was getting great, good results, but I just wasn't getting wins. Uh, and I feel like that's kind of been the case throughout this entire season. And a lot of that has been because maybe just a bit of bad luck, maybe a bit of, uh, a bit of lack of form, but I'm able to maintain the consistency because I feel like now I'm finally in a, in a good place where I understand how the races unfold. And now I think 
some bigger results and bigger wins are just going to be a matter of good timing and maybe some good mental execution. But yeah, I feel like I'm still learning quite a bit and I feel like I'm still developing and I still feel like there's some some runway left in this career. To say the least. Well, yeah, your, your entry into the world tour, let's call it late, calling a spade a spade. If you're plateauing with the results you're having, you're you're going to do quite well, young man. Oh, thank, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I, also, I also don't want to do this forever. And this is yeah. not something that I'm going to be doing. I don't see myself doing this in eight years from now. Okay. Like I don't uh, see myself racing until my, my late, late, late 30s. There are other, like I like the idea of uh, personal development. And once I feel like I'm really not developing further in this sport, I want to do something else. And I want to like... I, I I like the one one thing that this whole career has shown me is that you can reinvent yourself. There are other things out there in this world that are interesting and cool. And I think the whole process of just trying to redevelop yourself is one of the best things you can do in life. So I can want to do that again. Phenomenal. And something else. I love it. Um, well, yeah, you're making me feel old because I retired at the age of 32 from a 10 year <laughs> pro bike racing career. And, and, you know, certainly we were on different trajectories, but at the age of 32, as a domestique, having raced with Sagan for four years, you know, I've, I've reached the highest highs that I was going to reach. Yeah. And so then I'm like, okay, what, what can I do next? I want to develop. I want to do something else. I want to do something different. Um, so I never I'm sure you're enjoying that now and you're sure you're yeah. realizing that now, but like a lot of guys don't realize that and then they go far too long into their career. And it's almost like your perspective that you were saying when you were a runner, because you sort of just think that you're hot stuff and you know, you don't need to, to look around and do things differently and yeah. just because the trajectory you're on is going to be a good one. Um, tangibly, do you, do you know, can you say like this particular facet of life interests me, the, the restaurant world, the, the coaching world, the... Well, coaching world actually really interests me. I started a business back in, when I was uh, running, a, when I just started cycling uh, called Mile to Marathon with a fellow Olymp- Olympian named Dylan Wikes. He went to the uh, London uh, Olympics in the marathon and it's really taken off. We now have over 12 coaches working under us and 300 clients. And that's something that I definitely want to get involved with after cycling. I really like coaching. I want to, I want to get involved. I want to try and do an Ironman. Uh, I think that'd be really cool. I, I, I'm, I, how are you, how are you, uh, underwater? I'm not bad. Okay. Yeah. And like, uh, I, I'd like to try it out. Uh, I still think I'll have some legs left, mm-hmm. uh, when I get into it. And then beyond that, um, I just want to get into doing some more traveling and yeah, just, uh, see kind of where the, where life takes me. I dig it. So a lot of, a lot of kids grow up saying that they want to be a professional athlete. I think you probably once upon a time as a kid said you want to play for the Leafs or play for the Suns. Twofold question. You you were on track to be one of the world's best milers. My, my first question is, what does that mean if you went on to be one of the best milers? Does it pay well? Is there longevity? Is it is it something that you're due to, to run until injury? Or I'm really glad I became a cyclist. Okay. And it's running's even running like cyclists complain a lot but running savage there's no minimum wage in running uh-huh. contracts are crazy uh from there's they even have, often runners will have these things called diminishing performance clauses written into their contracts and if they're lucky enough to sign a multi-year deal normally it's a one-year deal but if they're signing anything longer than a one-year deal often you'll see these things uh called diminishing performance clauses where if they don't hit certain standards their contract gets cut it's 
much higher incidence of injury. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, the pay just overall is lower. It's a beautiful sport though. And it's one thing I miss about it is the sim- how simple it is. Cool. Like totally. yeah, I'd go to race in Europe and I just have, uh, you know, just a carry on. I, I don't know how great I could have been at running. I like, it's, that's kind of something I, I'll never, like, I can't, I know all, all I know is how good I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I did have some teammates that went on to quite a big success. One guy was Nick Wills, who finished second at the Olympic Games in Beijing and uh, third in Rio. Uh, we had a guy, well, another teammate of mine, that ended up coming second at the Commonwealth Games, named Nate Brandon. I, I, I don't know if, like, I, I initially was on kind of a career, I wouldn't say the same level as Nick, but I think I would have been able to have some success at the elite level. Wild. Part two of that question, let's pretend you were not a runner, you were not a cyclist. It's a very difficult hypothetical question to jump into, but but if you weren't in athletics, what do you suppose you'd be doing? I don't know, man. I'd be a ski bum. Sick. I would be... I loved skiing when I was a kid. I actually had posters of downhill skiing all over my room. Yeah, I probably... Running, actually... Endurance sports in general just uh, really changed my life. I was not a good student, in particularly in elementary school. I had severe tension issues. I just had this giant engine and tons of energy. And the worst thing you could have done was just sit me in a classroom. And so sitting in a classroom, I just couldn't focus. And uh, for so long, I was taught that I was stupid. And uh, I had to go to special ed. They almost held me back a year at one point. Special ed took place during gym class, which was my only outlet really to burn that energy. Yeah, It was really just a a poor... I, I did not fit the school system that I was in. But... Once I got into running, it was amazing. My marks went uh, through the roof and not that I was an, um, the, the greatest student, but I, I became a good student because of running. All of a sudden, I could just kind of settle down. Yeah. I was calm. And so we're not for running and even cycling now. Like my wife will tell me in the off season, I'm, I'm bouncing off the walls when I don't <laughs> ride. Yeah. Like I get, I'm crazy. Like I, I, I'm I'm normally a lot more mellow throughout the season, but in the off season, I'm I'm going crazy. I go crazy, and so I, I don't know what I would have been become if it were not for those sports. But it's certainly, I don't think it would have been pr- as productive, successful, had as much perspective. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but probably a ski bum on what sure. OS. You you would not have a desk job. I think it's safe to say. You yeah, I was to, never okay. I was never never destined for the desk. I don't think. I don't think so. Um, yeah, growing up skiing the great hills of. Eastern Ontario. Yeah, yeah. Well, I live... Yeah, so Eastern Ontario, yeah, we don't have very big, big ski hills, but uh, I live about an hour and a half away from Mont Tremblant, which is not... Oh, right on. Which is not a, a bad ski hill. And uh, there are a couple ski hills that are closer by. Like, I was in ski ski club, and every Wednesday night, we'd go to the local hill, which is, I mean, not big by any standard, but I'd ski every Wednesday and Saturday. Yeah, present companies all grew up skiing East Coast, so... Yeah. You can ski East Coast, you can ski anything. Yeah. Wonderful podcast, how I built this podcast. Yeah, I like it a lot. At the end, they pose the question, is your success the result of hard work, dedication, a particular skill set that you've really honed, or how much of it is luck? I pose the same question to you. You you are a grinder, you're a hard worker, you inherently have some sort of engine. You you luckily found running at some point in your life. How much how could you break that that question down? Oh, I'd be like ninety percent luck. I'd say, because I've I, I've ridden with, I've ran with great athletes, and I've ridden with great 
athletes. Like I've ridden with people who work just as hard, maybe even like I've ridden with people who ride work harder than I do. I've ridden with people who are naturally more talented than I am. But hey, I, I am lucky to have a fair amount of natural talent. I do work hard, but there are so many instances where if the wind blew a different direction, if I didn't connect with the right person, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I'm really lucky to have connected with this guy named Paul Saldana, my coach. He told me uh, to quit my job and I could become a pro. And I told him he was crazy. How long had you been working with him when he told you that? This was before he started coaching me. He just did testing on me. And so he you're said, like, okay, Man, Pied Piper. He said, quit your job. You can be a pro. And I said, no, I'm, I'm 27. That's a ridiculous idea. I can't afford to do that. And he said, I'll sort it out. And he figured out some funding for me. Yeah, I, if my, I didn't have great parents, a dad who uh, was, it's not that my parents are, are super rich or anything, but that my, my dad was well off enough to buy me a bike for my birthday. You know, all these things have contributed to me being really lucky and being where I also have my wife. Like, mm-hmm. like I said, she, she footed the bill. She told me to also quit my job and that she would, she'd support me. We, we, we lived at her mom's place for six months when we first started out. Like a lot of people helped me out in this journey and yeah, I'd, I'd put it to 90%. Good answer. I dig it. So typically we wrap up with three questions. You're in luck. You're going to get a fourth because <laughs> one is super easy or maybe not. The first one that no one else has been asked, your nicknames. Where does the name Rusty come from? Rusty's a weak one. Okay. It's uh, just my middle name, Russell. Ah. So short for uh, Russell, I guess. Okay. Any other nicknames? Uh, yeah, Woodsy, Woody, The Rook. I like that one the best. Yeah, The Rook's my favorite one, actually. That was uh, coined by, I'm not sure if it was, it was either Howes, Alex Howes, Nate Brown, or uh, Lawson Craddock, but they all kind of started calling me The Rook. That's outstanding. Okay, I've just asked two questions, but now we're going to give the, the delivery of the final three. I will... I will Offer them out there in consecutive order. Answer them post-questioning. One, favorite place to ride a bike. Two, what is the number one place you would like to ride a bike where you've never ridden? And three, with whom, living or otherwise, fictitious or non, who would you like to go on a bike ride with? Okay, so one, best place to ride a bike. I'm actually going to go... There's so many great places to ride a bike. I'm I'm not a, a snob in that sense. I don't say like, oh, if you haven't ridden in Spain, then you've ridden, you know, like yeah. uh, there, there are a lot of great places to ride in the world. So don't let this answer like curb your decision. You know, like I, I, I but Italy's great. I did love Luca for adventure riding. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I'd put it up there as probably tops. If I could ride anywhere, I'm actually quite interested in riding in Africa. Ooh. I've never been to Africa but particularly Rwanda. I uh, hear the riding was really good there, actually, really hilly. I've always wanted to do a tour of Rwanda. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's like the last place I haven't visited. Africa is a huge continent, but it's the last continent I haven't been to. Uh-huh. You uh, spend much time in Antarctica? Yeah, I mean, I haven't been to Antarctica. Either. Okay, just uh, checking. You never know. Yeah, yeah sorry. That, so uh, there are two, but uh, the the last habited, inha- inhabited or habitable place to ride a bike. Place to ride a bike. Fair. I mean, you could do. I guess I could do fat tire biking out in Antarctica. Good. Do you see my trip last last winter when I rode in uh, down the James Bay in February? No. Oh my god. No, I didn't see this. You remember Buck Miller? No. Okay, Buck Miller raced for all the the Canadian and North American teams we've we've hashed out in this conversation. Okay. Uh, Ryan Atkins, who is a yeah, I know that name. World's toughest mudder, six time over 
Yeah. Phenomenal athlete. He's going to be your neighbor or, or he lives near Sutton. He's about to move over there. Cool. And uh, Eric Batty, who is Emily Batty's brother, photographer. The three of them are adventure nutters and they they do crazy trips like the previous year they hiked across the uh uh what is the biggest provincial park in canada hiked across the biggest provincial park in canada yeah it's in ontario what's it called algonquin yes they hiked across the algonquin park it took them uh three weeks cool and then the next year they're like hey ted we're gonna fat bike down somewhere really cold and we went down the james bay in february self-supported Man, I can't believe I didn't see this. Oh man, I'll show you some pictures. Yeah, okay, okay. It's it's presumably kind of like riding across Antarctica. The cl- the coldest temperature was negative forty. What? Which is convenient because that's where Celsius and Fahrenheit overlap. I've hit my I've been in minus forty, but uh, like it was at the top of a ski hill, and it was uh, like uh, Mount Saint, which is not close to here, and it was just about pretty close to here. But that uh, is really savage, cold, savage cold for a ski area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you could have had hot cocoa. We yeah. were like, we better start a fire or we're going to die. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrible feeling. <laughs> okay, and with whom, living or otherwise, would you like to go for a bike ride? Oh, man. Um, uh, I'd say actually Hunter S. Thompson. Ooh, I'd like one. to go for a ride with him. Big fan of his work. Actually, one of the inspirations behind my son's name. Yeah, just uh, Fear and Loathing Las Vegas is, probably, is my favorite book. I've laughed out loud to that mm-hmm. and also had some really deep thoughts reading that book. And uh, I feel like he'd be an interesting guy to talk about, especially all those crazy drug binges. Uh, pick his brain. It'd be pretty cool. That's outstanding. Did you read that having any result of being an English major? No, actually, I read that a couple of years ago, like maybe two or three years ago. I'd read it in high school. Uh-huh. And then uh, was like, man, it needs a revisit. And then I was like, wow, oh, I think House and I were talking. Alex House and I were talking. About it. I was like, man, I haven't read that book in years. And I read it, and I was like, man, nice. It's my favorite book, I think. Uh, we did have a question from the audience, which I guess is going to answer this. But now I'm going to preclude that from your answers. Favorite book that you've read this year? Uh, Let's remove this year. Favorite book you've this read this year? That's actually, not- this year I've been reading some good ones. I just finished uh, Educated, which was really cool. Michelle Obama's book was amazing. Uh, and right now I'm reading. He, th- this guy, actually is tied, probably tied for my favorite book. He wrote The Sisters Brothers, as well as Under Major Duomo Minor. And his name's Patrick Dewitt. I got the book on my table right now. It's called French French Exit, which is when you leave a party without saying goodbye to the guest or friends. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah, yeah. It's a, that's they call it French exit. That's the name of the book? Or I think an Irish goodbye. I was going to say, I think it's Irish goodbye. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. All right. So anyways, it's called French exit and it's really funny and it kind of reads like a Wes Anderson movie. I'm really enjoying it. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, we might have a new segment here on King of the Ride, which is, what's your favorite book you've been reading? <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, you going to go ride Orleans tomorrow or did you today? We did today. Uh, we're definitely probably going to go back out around there tomorrow just because it's the safest place to ride. And it is. It's a nice little ride. I want to go apple picking out there. It's stunning. Yeah, yeah some nice strawberries too. Yeah, I'm a tourist these days, so it was raining today and decided not to go for a bike ride. Classic tourist. Classic tourist. Professional retiree. All right, Michael Woods, I really appreciate the time. Thank you for allowing me into your abode. And uh, best of luck this weekend. Thanks so much for having me.